stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists with Dave Ansell. Hi, Dave. Hi, Chris. With Helen Scales. Hello. And with me, Chris Smith. Now, coming up this week, biodegradable bin bag. Scientists have discovered how to make a form of plastic that breaks down in just a couple of months when you bury it. Also, scientists have spotted a flying saucer orbiting around Saturn, but it's not what it appears to be. Plus, how penguins could hold the key to surviving asphyxia because they can tolerate incredibly low oxygen levels. That's all on the way, Helen. Thanks, Chris. This week, it's also our science phone-in show, so we're looking at all your science questions, including solving how glue sticks things together and why is it that the sea looks blue? Plus, how would you like to, how would you like your reading matter served up to you in the future? Do you prefer a printed book or would you like your format to be just downloadable so you can listen to it? Tom Swift and the Visitor from Planet X by Victor Appleton II. Chapter 9, The Cave Monster. Skipper, Bud cried anxiously as Tom staggered back, his hands to his face. Sounds fantastic. That's Chris Valance will be introducing us to a new service that allows you to download some of your very favourite stories and listen to them all for free. Thanks, Helen. Also on this week's electrifying question of the week. I was told that I had to open the car door and jump out, keeping my feet together, and then hop away from the car, still with my feet right together. I've often wondered since if this was really true. So what should you do if a high-voltage cable landed on your car? The answer's coming up. Plus, if you're feeling experimental, in this week's Kitchen Science, I'll show you how to make a mirror, your glasses, in fact, any surface, fog-free. If you want to have a go, you'll need a cold glass or mirror and some washing-up liquid. Cheers, Dave. That's all on the way. Plus, don't forget, of course, it is our science question-and-answer show, so if you have any questions about science, technology or medicine, email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Now, let's take a look, as we always do, at some of the most important science stories that have come out this week. And I think this one's pretty important, guys, given that all around the world, something like one trillion bin bags get used every single year. And, of course, they're largely made of materials that will hang around for hundreds of thousands, if not nearly millions of years. They're not biodegradable. But now scientists think they've got an answer. This is Emmanuel Gianellis. He's at Cornell in America. And he's been studying a chemical which is called PHB. This is poly-3-hydroxybutyrate. And it's got all the features of a polymer so you can make plastics from it but it's also used by bacteria and other microbes as the bacterial equivalent of body fat it's how bugs and something store their energy so in other words they have metabolic pathways that can break it down so what he and his team have been doing is working out how to turn it into things like plastic bags now the the core chemical itself when you turn it into a polymer doesn't make ideal plastic so they've been looking at ways to make it even better and one of the things they've done is to add some tiny clay or silica nanoparticles and when you add these to this stuff and then polymerize it what you get is effectively a, a nice plain film which is transparent you can see through it and if you were to zoom in with a micro microscope you would see little islands of these nanoparticles surrounded by an ocean of the polymer and they think that this uh, will be the, the way forward because when they buried samples of this stuff in compost within seven weeks it completely broke down so it was stable for four weeks and then all of a sudden it just disappeared because bacteria already have the ability to break it down because they use it. And do they break it down completely? Is there nothing left at all? Or are there some kind of residues that we might have to think about as well that might be there in no, the No, they break it down completely. So and they left. think that the reason it breaks down so well is because these extra little particles create areas where you get what's called hydrolysis. You get breakdown of the polymer 
in those zones, and this makes it fall apart much more readily, but because it's a chemical that bacteria already know how to digest, it's much easier for it to be degraded. Would you also get problems that in some areas, especially hot countries, bacteria are a lot more active, so maybe it would only last a, few, a couple of weeks rather than six or seven, whereas in a cold country it could last for years? I think one area where this could be really useful, Dave, and that's a good point, is what about in refrigerated goods? Because we're pretty used to buying our chicken and it's got a plastic tray that it sits in with plastic film on top of it. Well, if you're going to keep it in fairly standard cold conditions that could work really well because you'd, you'd have a film you know would be stable for at least a month or so and most chickens if they're fresh they're going to be served up and and, and cooked within a week aren't they so that probably would be a really good way to do it cool brilliant now astronomers seem to have found two objects which look just like flying saucers orbiting saturn um, but this doesn't actually mean we should start running for the hills or possibly if they're coming from space maybe to the mines um, there are actually two moons of Saturn called Pan and Atlas and images from Cassini the Cassini mission have just come up with really high definition images revealed they've got a really strange shape they look like sort of battered moons with a ridge around the centre just like a kind of something from 50s B movie um, but they thought they may actually just be naturally forming. Um, they probably they think the rings of Saturn formed as sort of icy bodies, sort of comet-type things, broke up around orbiting Saturn. And the moons were probably one of the, some of the biggest lumps which are left. And then as they were forming, um, they kind of swept up um, other smaller objects in the, in the ring. And because the, the equator was actually in the sort of plane of the ring, more stuff was raining on them in the equator than at the North and South Poles. So they built up this kind of bulge around the centre. And looking but what just about like... the other moons that Saturn's got? Because it's got quite a few, hasn't it? So why aren't they this shape? Um, I guess many of those are a lot bigger, so the gravity will have, they'll, they'll probably, there's enough gravity to kind of even out the differences. And probably they'd have to have been very stable in the ring for quite a long time to gain this matter only on the equator. So, so are these moons fairly small, Dave? Is that why we haven't seen them before? They're, they're quite small, so they've only just had really high-resolution images um, and, I th and I think they've actually only been recently discovered. Saturn's turning out to be a really weird place, isn't it? Because the, the Cassini missions put so much new light on what was previously a very dark area of our solar system. I mean, earlier this year they spotted the moon Hyperion and got their first really good pictures of it. And it looks like a blob of sponge drifting around in space. And it turns out it almost is sponge because most of it's empty space. It's got such low gravity that when a big body smashes into it, like a, a meteor or something, smashes into it and knocks stuff off. Now, most of the time you get these craters because the dust that it throws up then settles down again. But the gravity of Hyperion so low that it just goes off into space and you, you've got this thing that's literally more holes than rock anymore. Amazing. Yeah, if you look at anything in enough detail, it starts to look interesting. Helen. And from space, we come crashing back down to Earth and even into the sea. Yes, that's right. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to keep talking about the seas here. And about one of the most familiar birds that we see living on the South Pole, those wonderful emperor penguins that we've all seen on uh, television and those documentaries and so on. Um, but we now find out about a most ingenious method of grabbing every last bit of oxygen that these birds have in their lungs, which help them to survive incredibly long dives that they make into the icy waters of the Antarctic Ocean. Now, that's according to new research from Paul Ponganis and his colleagues at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego in California and they strapped oxygen centres to diving penguins and found that they often come back up for air only when they've just about drained virtually all the oxygen from their lungs. So how were they monitoring the oxygen in the penguin, Helen? Um, well, I think they were basically... What they did was there. it was in a, um, a research area in Antarctica where they actually had to cut holes through the sea ice, which covers most of the ice, so that the penguins could only come up and down through these particular holes 
holes. And I actually think that they tested the oxygen when they popped up their heads. There's an easy way of doing it on patients, which we use all the time in hospitals, where you shine light of a certain wavelength through the skin. You have a little probe that sits on your finger. And haemoglobin, when it's got oxygen in, changes colour compared with haemoglobin when it hasn't. And you can use that to work out very accurately how much oxygen there must be in the haemoglobin. So is, is that... Right, I'm not sure if... I think, basically, we're talking about haemoglobin here. And they were... and. The key thing is the oxygen that was in their lungs, not in the haemoglobin, because what's the difference, we think, between these emperor penguins, the, the, their haemoglobin, which is this pigment that absorbs oxygen that we all have, and it's pumped around our blood vessels. Um, but basically, in most animals, haemoglobin doesn't really work very well at very low oxygen levels. But in penguins, in these penguins, they seem to mop up virtually every last bit of it, so it's really a bit special. And it's this level of oxygen in the lungs that was incredibly low when these penguins came back up to the surface. They really are running on empty. You know, if, they, if it was the equivalent of a, a car driving along the motorway, they'd be pulling in with virtually nothing left in their tanks at all. But aren't lots of marine creatures like that? If you look at seals, for instance, and whales that, that can spend hours underwater, they, they also can do that. There's all sorts of mechanisms that mean that animals can stay down for longer in terms of sort of shunting um, blood around the body, really slowing down their heart rate, all sorts of things. But I think this is one of the first studies looking at this particular idea of what's going on in the blood particularly. Um, and yeah, there's lots more details we still need to find out. But it basically means that these, these amazing birds can die for about 20 minutes to over 500 metres while they're um, foraging for food. Um, and the question is, why is it that they're not suffering from damage in, to their tissues inside their bodies? Mm. That normally, if we were starved of oxygen for that long, we would suffer huge damage, you know, to our brains particularly. So the question is, hopefully, that by understanding more about how these types of animals can survive so long with um, with so little amounts of oxygen, perhaps we can help to understand, you know, ways in which um, when humans um, are deprived of oxygen for various, um, you know, accidental reasons, um, how we can try and minimise damage to tissues in our own bodies. So it's I wonder if the cold's cool. got anything to do with it, because of course one of the things we have found out in recent years is that if you do operations or put people who are in, say, heart attack situations in very cold environments, they tend to do better because the tissues need less oxygen and less, and they burn less energy when they're colder. So perhaps that's got something we to do with it. We know that if you fall into a lake, you can survive for ages, um, if, like if it's very cold. <laughs> so fall into a cold lake if you're going to fall in any lake. We're talking about tissues getting damaged by various things. Heart attacks, one person in three listening to this programme, one person in three, three of us in here, one person in three is going to die as a result of heart disease, and heart attacks account for a lot of those deaths. And one of the, f- the most fatal things that can be an outcome of a heart attack is a subsequent what's called arrhythmia. This is a disturbance in heart rhythm. And scientists have known for a long time that this happens, and one of the particularly common ones is called a ventricular tachycardia. But exactly why it happens has been a bit of a mystery, and now scientists at the University of Bonn, led by Wilhelm Roll and his colleagues, think they know the answer, and they think they can get around the problem with some stem cells. They took mice, and they used a, a liquid nitrogen-cooled probe to damage the muscle of the heart in these experimental mice to simulate a heart attack in these animals and then they injected some stem cells what are called embryonic cardiomyocytes so these are embryonic stem cells that are going to become heart cells into the damaged area and what they found was that the treated animals had a very very low risk of having these particular arrhythmias these rhythm disturbances afterwards compared with animals that didn't get the injection or animals where they just took stem cells that were going to become normal muscle and put those in. Now, to find out what was going on, they zoomed in on the area that they'd done the injections into and studied how the injected heart cells were linking together and how they were linking into the rest of the heart. 
It's very interesting because it turns out that heart cells make an electrical junction between them called a connexin, connexin 43, and this is a bit like a plug and a plug socket, and the cells literally plug themselves into the cell next door, and this enables electrical signals to pass from one cell into the next, into the next, into the next. And so this means that when you've got a scar in the heart caused by a heart attack, if you put the normal heart cells back into that scarred area, the electricity, which is associated with the heartbeat, can flow normally through this area and connect up with the other bits of the heart again, and this means that it's much more stable electrically. If you put normal muscle cells in, they don't make this particular connexin molecule, so they can't wire themselves in properly. So they, they don't actually restore the normal flow of electricity, which is why you get these funny uh, disturbances of rhythm. What the researchers think, therefore, you could do is to, say, take some stem cells from muscle in a person who's had a heart attack. You could add the gene for this connexin, to the stem cells from normal muscle and then inject the normal muscle cells and they should wire themselves into the heart, get around the rhythm problem and you would have fewer people dying of these arrhythmias. I guess it means you don't have to find stem cells which are quite difficult ethically if, and physically, I guess, to get hold of. Exactly. If you can use your own muscles as the source of stem cells, you don't have to go to an embryo, which people agree with and they find that a lot more attractive as a prospect. But the problem would have been it could have triggered abnormal heartbeats. But with this technology, you can get around the problem. Cool, brilliant. Now, going back sort of to water in the oceans, 8,000 years ago, a huge lake which covered most of Canada kind of emptied itself into the sea, which probably caused the Gulf Stream to stop. Now, the Gulf Stream is a flow of warm water coming up from the Gulf of Mexico to northern Europe. It brings us the equivalent of about a million nuclear power stations of heat all the way through the winter, in fact, and through the summer as well. All this flowing water flowing north has got to go somewhere, otherwise it would just pile up and Greenland would slowly flood and the North Pole would flood. So there needs to be a current going south. And this is form. Uh, this comes because um, as ice forms up in the North Pole, um, it concentrates the salt because only the fresh water freezes, and so the, and the more salty water sinks and then goes back down the centre of the Atlantic. Um, if this return current gets stopped, it's going to stop the uh, Gulf Stream. Now, Helga Cleven from the University of Bergen has detected a huge amount of land sediment on the bottom of the Labrador Sea off Canada at a time which coincides with a sudden 8 degrees C cooling in Greenland. Um, this, and so the, what they think happened was that there was a huge lake covering the whole of Canada and it was being blocked off by a glass, some glacier. As the glacier melted, all of a sudden it was all released. This diluted the ocean. It couldn't sink anymore. And so the Gulf Stream got stopped. That must have been a massive lake, Dave, to it do that. It was absolutely enormous, yeah. Um, and it was formed by the Ice Age, kind of the rivers which would normally flow out um, through the Hudson Bay were blocked by all of these ice caps. And so this huge lake built up from behind So them. this must give us some quite important clues as to what might happen in future if we switch off the Gulf Stream again today. Because yeah. people are worried about the if the North Pole melts, all that fresh water going in would do a similar thing to what you're saying happened or was, you've got proof for it, almost for it happening 8,000 years ago. Yeah, now we know it actually happened in the past. What we've got to work out is how much water it would need to do the same thing again and whether we've got to worry about as the Greenland ice cap melts, it could do the same thing, plunging us into another kind of semi-ice age. And we're going to stay with the sea just for one last story from me. We hear a lot these days about how we need to protect parts of our sea, and you certainly hear a lot of it from me over the shows here in The Naked Scientist, um, because there are all sorts of human impacts, fishing pollution and so on, that we are making on the oceans. And they're just um, we hear so much about how there not being enough fish left to feed ourselves at the moment, let alone into the future, not to mention the need to protect nature and biodiversity just for its own sake. But it's really difficult to persuade governments to commit to paying for things like marine reserves or 
marine protected areas, as they're also known, which is when we need to encourage fishermen to leave some bits of the seas alone, basically to let them recover and to give us more chance to be able to find those fish to keep feeding ourselves with. But now a joint study from North America's Nature Conservancy um, and various other conservation organisations and universities has demonstrated, I think really importantly for the first time, just how strong the link between human well-being, so that's ourselves, our quality of life, is with the state of the oceans and the need to have marine conservation. We talk a lot about it, but they've actually shown that you can have a really tight link between protecting the seas and just how well people can live their lives. Now, the study was focused in Fiji, the Philippines, the Solomon Islands and Indonesia, so in parts of the world, tropical reefs are you know, flourishing there, but there are also a lot of problems. And in these particular sites, catches of fish were absolutely dire before governments stepped in and funded basically small little protected areas where fishermen were encouraged um, to run their own marine protected areas and stop fishing. And the really good news was that within just two or three years, the amount of fish they were catching, as well as their income and their overall quality of life, went up. So there was this very strong link between being able to protect just little parts of the sea and, you know, our own our own well-being. I think it's it could be a really shining light, this particular study, to maybe help other marine reserves to be developed, in particularly in developing countries. Um, Can I just the, ask you, Helen, yeah. on this? Because... That applies to fishermen going out small-scale boats, maybe small nets that they deploy by hand. How does that compare with, say, the kind of fishing we see on an industrial scale with boats trawling the bottom of the well, ocean absolutely. Bed. I mean, the same the theory same apply? definitely applies. This was obviously a study of um, in developing countries where it tends to be smaller scale things happening. Um, we also need to consider what we need to do on those larger scales as well, and it's going to be larger scale protected areas that are needed. But I think at least we've got this one shining light for those you know developing countries where it's always an issue of poverty and you know trying to help people, um, and it's hard to kind of take nature perhaps ahead of that. But I think this is the first time it's really shown the two come together. Thank you, Helen. That's good news indeed, isn't it? It's The Naked Scientist with Chris, Dave and Helen. We're taking your science questions for you this week. In a second, we'll be finding out how glue actually works. How does it stick things together? And why does the sea look blue? If you've got a question for us, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Coming up shortly, we'll be finding out about gut bugs, viruses that can give you diarrhoea and vomiting, Norwalk-like viruses. Jim Gray's in the, uh, in the reception. He's coming on shortly. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. So Dave, this one is from Dennis Soley and he says, how does glue actually work? Is it to do with electrons, etc.? Um, many things to do with chemistry or to do with electrons. Um, there's various ways that glue can work. Um, kind of the simplest would be that if you have a, two surfaces which are kind of quite rough and have little, little cavities in them, um, if you basically put something which is liquid in there um, and sets, it will kind of um, make little plugs inside the cavities which you can't pull out because they're too big and it just jams the two together and it can't pull out. Um, there are other ones which basically work... If you put two surfaces, if you have two perfectly flat surfaces really close together um, and they put them really close together, they actually stick together. This is because of force due to the electrons, as he was saying, um, called the van der Waals force, force. And basically, if you put two things very close together, there's an attraction between them and they stick together. When you normally put two things together, though, you don't feel that force. That's because there's normally little lumps of dust or little roughnesses. They can't get close enough to actually stick together. But if you put something kind of flexible and squidgy in there, like a glue, for example, um, it will actually, especially tapes, it will actually kind of take up all the little bumps and lumps and bumps and actually stick the two together and mean that the Van der Waals force can actually act right next to each other and actually stick the two together. Scientists have found that geckos do the same thing to run up windows, don't they? They have lots of tiny hairs on the ends of their toes. 
and these give you this very close attachment to the surface because of these van der Waals attractions you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. And so basically the, the little hairs can all bend and take up whatever shape the surface is and they'll stick to it. And other things can just chemically bond to surfaces. So you get a, a polymer stuck on one side of the glue, glue stick itself chemically to one side and stick itself chemically to the other side. And so they're going to be glued together, like tying together with a piece of string. Cheers, Dave. Helen, this one is from Robbie and he says, why do blue bottles, otherwise known as Portuguese man of war jellyfish, have toxic stings have more toxic stings at different times of the year? Well, I'm actually afraid that that's the first time I've ever heard of um, there being any variation annually over a year in the amount of toxin or even in the, the how bad a sting could be from a jellyfish. So I'm actually really keen to know where you heard that. Um, so if you want to get back to us on that, or well, if anyone else has any ideas, that would be great. We certainly have annual variations in the amount of people who get stung, but that's because there's an annual variation in the number of jellyfish in the sea. And they actually change over seasons, um, often linked to things like f- um, blooms of plankton, which is what they tend to feed on. When there's more food around for jellyfish, there tends to be a boom of them. You may have heard recently there was a boom of de- jellyfish, a huge explosion of them in England, and it was causing great problems for farms of um, fish that we eat, so trout and so on. So I'm, actually, I don't know. It's a very good question, and I'd like to know more about it. So if you've got any ideas of, is there any difference um, in the toxicity of um, those stings? The Portuguese man of war, of course, aren't jellyfish. Well, they're actually a form of colonial hydroid, if you'd like to know. So lots of little tiny animals stuck together. Um, but uh, yes, I'd love to know more if anyone has any ideas. When I was in Australia uh, on the east coast near Sydney, I was watching them washing in on the tide. So I've actually been stung they're, they're, they're by they're one. Not pretty. a yes, so very the painful, tiny one, aren't they? The smaller ones, not the big ones. They are horribly painful. So. The very pretty Hazel's on the line. Hello, Hazel. Hello, my dear. What can we do for you? If you get cold sores and you give blood... Can the virus be passed on? Okay, good question. Um, The answer is probably almost zero chance of that because the virus that causes cold sores is the herpes simplex virus. Most of us acquire this when we're very young because of our parents kissing us and uh, kids slobbering over each other in nurseries and things. So it spreads in saliva. It gets into your body. The first time you get it, it produces a sore throat, ulcers in the mouth and swollen glands in the neck and a high temperature. Then what it does is it invades the nervous system, the sensory nerves that supply your mouth and tongue and other parts of the body where it can get to because it can also cause genital herpes and it goes inside the nerve cells and it then switches off and it exists there as a tiny piece of DNA just loitering alongside the cell's own DNA and then periodically from time to time it comes back to life. And we don't know exactly what triggers it to come back to life but we know that things like damage to the skin say sunburn, in in certain cases women uh, menstruating can do it, being depressed, also having immune depression, so your immune system not working so well can bring it out again, and the virus turns back on its DNA, makes new virus particles that come down the nerve to the skin, and then they pop out, and the infectious lesion is the cold sore. And when you kiss someone who's got one, that's how you pick it up. But thankfully, it doesn't really ever get into the bloodstream because it's not that kind of virus. So you should be safe from herpes through blood products and blood donations. There are other members of the herpes family that do spread through blood, but not herpes simplex, Hazel. So I think you're all right. Oh, well, that's good because I've given 48 lots of blood and I wouldn't like to think that I've passed it on. You're not going to inflict it on somebody? No. Okay. look, thanks for joining us. It's been great having you on the programme. Thank you, my dear. If you'd like to ask any questions on The Naked Scientist, email chris at nakedscientist.com. I've got an email here from Meg, and she says, Why is water in the ocean blue when you look at it, and water in lakes and rivers clear when you look at it? OK, this is all to do, actually, with how water interacts with light. 
Um, now, water, when it's a vapour in the atmosphere, the water molecules are not glued together in the same way as they are when they're a liquid. Water molecules are sticky, and they have this thing called a hydrogen bomb which links one molecule together, but as vapour, they're separated out. And water molecules separated out or hanging around just in pairs are very good at soaking up infrared light, so they soak up heat, but not visible light. But when water forms a liquid, so lots of molecules stuck together, it stiffens the bond between the hydrogen and the oxygen, and this means that instead of absorbing infrared, it now begins to absorb light at the red end of the spectrum. So it pushes down into the red a little bit. And so if you take light, white light is a mixture of lots of different wavelengths. And if you take the red out a bit, things look bluer. So when you've got lots and lots and lots of water together, you take more and more red out, so things look bluer and bluer and bluer. So the deeper underwater you go, the bluer it looks. And that's why some fish, which I expect you're going to tell us about, have the ability to see certain colours but not others. There is that as well. But if you also, if you go diving and you take down with you something that's red or pink, it really just, the colour washes out of it very quickly. Um, and it, it, Not literally, it just looks different. It just looks yeah, like yeah. it. So you can't see those colours down, down deep. But the sea is also sometimes green and that's nothing to do with light. That's all about the plants that grow in it. And red sometimes if you get to red tides as well. So there's different colours the sea can be And the other thing, of course, reasons. is blood. When, when, you see your, when you cut yourself underwater yes, Exactly. You have blood and you bleed black because, it looks of course, like you can't. Yes, you can't see the red colour, yes, can you? It's amazing. Yeah. It's the Naked Scientist with Chris, Dave, and Helen. If you have any questions for us, drop us a line. Coming up in just a second, we'll be hearing from Jim Gray, and he's going to talk to us about bugs that can make you sick. Laying the facts bare: the Naked Scientists. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris, Dave and Helen. And we're talking now with Dr Jim Gray. He's from the Health Protection Agency in the UK. They're based, they're based in London. And what we've had in the east of England recently is a big outbreak of a problem caused by what's called norovirus. This is a virus that gets into us and causes outbreaks of vomiting and diarrhoea. So we thought we'd get the man himself in. Uh, as one of your colleagues affectionately called you, Jim, the poo man, <laughs> to come and tell us about what, what it's all about. So, so what actually is this virus? Right. Uh, norovirus has uh, previously been called a small round structured virus or a Norwalk-like virus. It's an RNA virus and it actually is very stable virus. It requires a low infectious dose to cause gastroenteritis. Uh, there's a short incubation period associated with this disease and there are multiple transmission routes. So you could, be, you could have transmission from person to person, through food, through water or from environmental surfaces. So how long after you catch it, how long before you begin to get unwell? About 24 hours. Oh, it's very quick? Very quick. Yeah, OK, so, so how does it actually spread then? It's spread usually by contact with someone who's infected or someone contaminating food or water or contaminating surfaces, just uh, anything that they touch with their hands. And so once you take the virus into your body, talk us through what actually happens next. Right, the virus uh, obviously gets into the gut and begins to replicate. Uh, the interesting thing about norovirus is the site that it replicates at is the site where you have the disease, and therefore there is no... Uh, uh, lag time. There's no time for the immune system to uh, react before the virus actually starts to replicate. And so everyone will be constantly infected throughout life. And, and so every single sort of body product, if you like, both vomiting and diarrhoea, is, is highly infectious? Yeah. Um, there are probably, in a gram of faeces or a gram of vomit, there's probably a million infectious doses. 
So you could infect a million people with wow, a gram. Wow, that, that's, that's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I've got an email here from... Uh, Nick, is, Nick is in Boston and he says we've had a bit of an epidemic here uh, in Boston in the last couple of months and I've been getting into some trouble with my feminist friends for saying this but of all of those I know who've got it the women have been hit far worse than the guys for instance I had a very upset stomach for a couple of days and our two year old son vomited once but otherwise they seem fine but my wife was violently ill for quite some time over a day um, with it coming out of both ends if you know what I mean and I know several other couples with the same experience why should this be? Uh, women probably uh, have more infections because they have more contact with children. They change the nappies, whereas the fathers uh, rarely change the nappies. And it's contact with with the virus, uh, really, that's causing the disease. Um, Why children have uh, milder disease than adults? uh, It's because these viruses are circulating all the time in children, and therefore they're having multiple infections and they're having some level of immunity to the virus, whereas the adults haven't seen this virus since they were a child, and therefore they have very low or no immunity to the virus. So why are we seeing big outbreaks of this? There are lots of causes of food poisoning. Why is this one doing the rounds at the moment? Um, the vi- uh, the, because it's an RNA virus, it has the ability to mutate quite readily and therefore be selected. And so what you see each year are variants of the virus circulating. As the population uh, develops immunity to those uh, viruses, a new virus is selected. And so we see waves uh, of epidemics probably every two or three years across the world uh, as a new virus is selected. It's very much like influenza. We see exactly the same thing with influenza. Every two or three years, a new virus is selected, a variant. And so all these RNA viruses are um, susceptible to mutation. How do we avoid getting it, Jim? Good hygiene. Wash your hands, I think, is is probably the, the, the best approach. Uh, um, the there is no real prospect for a vaccine for this virus because of the rate of mutation that you would need to have a vaccine for every year and so the best approach is good hygiene and the virus is usually passed on by touching so wash your hands um if someone in the house is ill then make sure that that you wash down surfaces that you use a, a weak solution of bleach to wash down surfaces, that'll kill the virus. And I was rather shocked when I learned, you know, I, I work in a hospital as a virologist, and someone pointed out to me all these wonderful uh, alcohol ham rubs that we should be using when we go on all the wards, and they actually said to me, that doesn't uh, affect norovirus at all. That's right. I mean, uh, alcohol usually uh, will attack um, a surface that contains a lipid. Norovirus is protein. There's no lipid in, in norovirus. So the, all you're doing is moving the virus around the surface uh, using alcohol. It's reassuring, isn't it? So soap and water is the order of the day. Exactly. Thanks very much. And as one person said to me, diarrhoea runs in families. That was Jim Gray. He's from the Health Protection Agency. Thank you very much for coming in, Jim. It's been great to have you on the programme. Helen. Now, books, as we all know, make fantastic Christmas presents, and which is why so many of them come out at this time of year. So this month's technology segment, Chris Valance will tell us, um, will tell Mira, sorry, that the future of books may not be on paper. I've been looking at the future of books. I was inspired to do this because of the launch of Amazon's Kindle. It was launched on November the 19th. Kindle is Amazon's electronic book reader. You know, this is the device that we've all been waiting for since the 1960s. The wonderful science fiction tablet that would contain the entire British library and you'd be able to surf through it and look at whatever book you wanted. Well, the Kindle offers you the opportunity to download books. It's got an innovative screen. It's not going to give you that kind of blinding glare that uh, laptops give you. And it'll give you the opportunity of reading newspapers and some blogs. But it's had mixed reviews. Robert Scoble, the big Microsoft blogger, one of the leading thinkers in the tech industry, says 
didn't like it. He found it really hard to hold and use the device. Joel Johnson, writing for Boing Boing, said the $400 price tag was too much and the cost of getting blogs, $2 a month, and newspapers, $15 a month, was simply too high. So some real mixed reviews there. Very popular, sold out when it was launched, but at the same time a lot of people saying, you know, this isn't quite the e-book reader that maybe we've been hoping for that we still believe can be built. So if that wasn't your cup of tea, what else is out there for people to go to? Well, I think you don't have to have a swanky ebook reader to access literature online. Maybe you just need an MP3 player. There is this wonderful site, LibriVox, which has public domain works, which you can listen to as podcasts. Stuff like this. <laughs> Tom Swift and the Visitor from Planet X by Victor Appleton II. Chapter 9. The Cave Monster. Skipper! Bud cried anxiously as Tom staggered back, his hands to his face. I'm all right. No harm done, Tom assured his friend. Both boys were a bit shaken by the accident, nevertheless. So things like that may or may not be your cup of tea. More things, uh, new novels, uh, podio books, or maybe you'd like to have a go at writing a book yourself. There is annually the NaNoWriMo event, which tries to encourage people to write a book in a month. Bit of a challenge, that. Or maybe you want to help somebody else write a book. Because there are a lot of authors now who are blogging. You may have seen Naomi Novik's books, the Tamarare series about dragons. She has a very interesting live journal blog and also let's not forget fan fiction people inventing new storylines for established characters and again you might find something that interests and tickles your fancy there all of this stuff is free so all that is available online but what is the future of the publishing industry itself well i have to say i don't know but I've been talking to somebody who does. Lulu.com is one of the most innovative Web 2.0 publishing houses. Basically, Lulu enables people to publish very small runs of books and to distribute those online and to market them online. Bob Young is their chief executive. and Well, we've had seen how the music industry has been revolutionised by the web and how music companies are struggling to figure out how they're going to make money. So talking to Bob Young, I asked him if the publishing industry was going to face the same kind of challenges. I'm not going to deny that we are all in our modern society as businessmen subject to a huge amount of change. And you can either embrace it and try and innovate on behalf of your customers. Because keep in mind, the problem is being created <laughs> at the expense of the suppliers, but on behalf of the consumer. And using the internet, they're able to get better value for themselves than they were ever able to in the traditional model where the only way to buy a song was to drive across town to a record store and you bought 20 songs on a CD, but you wanted the songs on your Walkman or your electronic device. And then, of course, along comes the Internet, and suddenly you can download the song off a site directly, and you can buy that song for 50p each instead of £20 for... 20 songs, 19 of which you don't want, on a piece of plastic that doesn't do you any good. But I just wonder what the solution is. Books take such a long time yeah. to write. There's such yeah. an investment in them. That's right. That, you know, I can't just give it away. I, I need people to pay quite a bit for even a low-volume book for it That's to right. be worth my even considering writing it. That's right. But keep in mind, the books are very different items than music. So two things we know. One is that services such as Amazon and Sony both have uh, e-book readers and you can read things on your computer. We know things are going to change. Equally, 
we know that they will not change in the same way that other things change because it's a different form of content. You have to invest many, many hours to consume a book, whether it's a detective story or or whether it's a a reference manual on quantum mechanics. I'm not 100% sure what the future of the book industry is. All I do know is that it's very bright because as we educate our world to a higher and higher standard, we're creating ever more readers of books. You know, you and I are spending more money on intellectual property, books, music, videos, than our parents did, and dramatically more than our grandparents did. We're now spending our money on things that we consume with our mind as opposed to uh, to physical objects. So that was Bob Young, the CEO of Lulu.com, in bullish mood about the opportunities for publishing creative content online. One interesting thing he said to me is that books aren't just digital media. It's not just the text. It's also the physical product as well. Anybody who's seen a really nicely bound old book or a new book where somebody's taken a real care over the design and the look and the feel of it, it's a product that you can't really copy in the same way. And that, again, is another difference and another challenge for e-books and for things like the Kindle, recreating the look and the feel and the physical product. That was our technology correspondent, Chris Valance, explaining how you may never need to buy a paperback again. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm pretty sure I, I, I still like the feel of a proper book, something you can actually get hold of and then something you can lose on the aeroplane when you're on your transcontinental flight. Connor's on the phone. Hi, Connor. Oh, hello. What do you want to talk about? Yes, I'd like to ask him. Um, I saw an astronaut lifting a piece of very heavy equipment with one hand on the shuttle a while back, but they said he had to put it down very slowly because it could still do a lot of damage. Yeah, that's right. I don't understand that. Okay, there's two concepts to do, which are often confused. One of them's weight, which is how heavy things feel, and the other one is called mass. Um, now, mass is how hard it is to make accelerate things or stop things. And it just so happens that the bigger the mass is, the bigger the weight is, the more they're attracted to the centre of the Earth, so the heavier they feel as well. But if you take away, if you go up into space and it's in, you're in free fall, you're in orbit, um, you've taken away the weight, but the mass is still there. So if you um, try and start it moving, it's very difficult. If you try and stop it moving, it's very difficult. So if you throw a hammer at someone, then it would still have all this mass, all this inertia. So when it hits someone, it's still going to hurt. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's right. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Connor. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientist. And if you'd like to ask us any questions, it's chris at nakedscientist.com. Paul Batrashat's got in touch. He's near Stevenage. Uh, we'll be asking Mark, who's with us now from Chemistry World, in just a second this answer. You can have a think about this, Mark. Uh, Paul says, Thursday's Daily Mail reported that Portsmouth FC shirts have negatively charged irons to increase performance. Is that risky in thunderstorms? Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Well, it's that time again, as we do every month, where we catch up with Mark Peplow. He's the editor of Chemistry World from the Royal Society of Chemistry. They're based in Cambridge. And Mark's here to give us an update on what's hot this month in the world of chemistry. But before then, Mark, what do you think of this thing that Paul sent in about the Daily Mail and Portsmouth FC shirts? Hi, Chris. Uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm fairly sceptical. I was just having a quick skim over the Daily Mail story there. Uh, and what they're saying is that uh, somehow negative ions, anions, are being generated by the shirt 
uh, and this is having uh, an effect on blood flow um, in the bodies of the players that wear the shirts. When you actually read down the story, it's interesting, they're reporting a supposed improvement in mean performance of 2.7%. And what's performance? Well, I, I think that's probably quite hard to judge anyway, but that level of improvement, 2.7%, uh, one can imagine that sort of performance boost um, coming from the morale, if you like, the positive morale of wearing a high-tech shirt. Um, so I, I'm, I have to say I'm a little sceptical about this. The closest I can sort of come to that is when people reported that they were making anti-body odour shirts mm. which were impregnated with silver irons and also with various clays, and the silver irons kill the bacteria. Yeah. So the Egyptians knew about that, didn't they? And that stops the, the bugs making sweat into niffy things, and that, the clay stuff soaks up the sweat. That's right, that's absolutely true, and that is proven to work, actually. Um, increasingly, we're seeing uh, silver being woven into fabrics that make things like socks and uh, all, all sorts of materials. I think someone said that they were producing a pair of stockings you could wear in hospital and pyjamas you could wear in hospital. Isn't M&S uh, producing uh, a silver thread pyjamas that you can wear in hospital to stop yourself getting MRSA, allegedly. I get mine from Debenhams, <laughs> Chris. <laughs> anyway, Mark, look, let's look at this, this month's chemistry stories. So what's this about food and acrylamide? What's acrylamide? Yeah, this is uh, the, the next chapter, if you like, in a really interesting story that's been running for five years. Um, this week, um, scientists published the first study that's ever confirmed a long-proposed link uh, between a compound called acrylamide and cancer. Now, acrylamide might sound kind of a scary thing, but it's actually fairly common in very small amounts in an awful lot of food. It's, it's produced whenever you make food um, that uh, goes toasty. Um, anything that you're making that, if you like, has a nice brown crispiness to it... And tastes um, good. And tastes good, unfortunately. Uh, then it's got acrylamide in it. It's generated by this reaction called the Maillard reaction, uh, and it's, it's basically a reaction between uh, uh, certain types of amino acids and some sugars, and it really kicks into action above 120 degrees. You particularly find it in things like crisps and biscuits and pastries and things like that and, and chips. Um, so it's all that good stuff. Um, this study basically involved uh, 62,000 women uh, that were monitored in Holland over 11 years, so it's quite a substantial study. And what the scientists found um, was that um, if they had high um, levels of acrylamide in their diet, um, that effectively doubled their risk of developing womb or ovarian cancer. Now, that sounds a little scary, um, but the levels of risk for those cancers are extremely low, so even doubling the risk doesn't mean there's huge swathes of people dying from intaking fried food and things but like that. But should at the same time, the take-home message that they should pick up from this story is eat less of it then? Well, um, Cancer Research UK were, were very quick this week to sort of uh, reassure women that they shouldn't be scared by these findings. Uh, but ultimately, the advice has to be uh, that if you are concerned by these sorts of things, it, it, it's yet another reason, really, uh, to try and eat more fruit and vegetables and, and less fried food. Oh, well, let's hope so, because I quite, I quite like my fried food, although in moderation, of course. In moderation. Now, if you eat a lot of fried food, though, one thing it will do is clog your arteries up. And in recent years, scientists and doctors have begun to unblock arteries with angioplasty. This is threading a, a catheter into the blocked artery and inflating a balloon to open it. And then they started adding stents, these frames that you can deploy inside the artery to keep it propped open. What's the story on that now? 
Well, this is quite interesting. Um, uh, like you said, stents have been used. As, they're kind of like uh, little bits of scaffolding that you put uh, inside blocked arteries to hold them open. Um, but over the last year, um, uh, some concerns have been rising about stents, um, fears that they may uh, increase the risk of clotting. Um, the, uh, although a lot of the stents um, are coated, if you like, the, the threads of metal are coated in a polymer which releases anti-clotting drugs when they're in the body. These don't last for very long. They tend to wear out. And so in longer-term studies, people are starting to see problems with these things. But um, we had a correspondent go to the Materials Research Society meeting in America a couple of weeks ago uh, where there's two new developments, really interesting developments in, in making stents. One of them um, effectively uh, creates a, a, a rubber ball. Rather than using a, a, this sort of metal framework, it creates a rubber ball, um, an elongated rubber ball with effectively a metal spring inside it. Um, and it's the polymer itself that the ball is made out of which stops clotting um, and ensures that you uh, you can have the stents inside the body for much longer. These have been tested so far in pigs and rats, um, and it seems to make a substantial difference in terms of their effectiveness. Um, the other issue, uh, the other piece of research which, which came up, which was particularly interesting, um, is uh, uh, one of the uh, problems with this, of course, is that you have a metal coil inside this, um, holding it into shape. Um, scientists are now working on so-called shape metal memory polymers, uh, which will pack up tightly at room temperature at about 20 degrees into a tiny thread. But uh, when they actually get into the body, the room at uh, the body temperature, which is higher than room temperature, makes them unfurl um, into their own scaffolding. So there's no metal required. And what that means is that it doesn't stress the arteries quite as much when you're actually putting in there. They, they effectively expand to fit into the arteries a lot cleaner. Thank you very much. That sounds exciting. Thanks, Mark. That's Mark Peplow. He's the editor of Chemistry World, which is the magazine of the Royal Society of Chemistry. They're based in Cambridge. Thank you very much. They're on the web at chemistryworld.org. Now it's time for us to catch up once again with Diana for Question of the Week. Hello and welcome to an electrifying Question of the Week, where we'll be charging cars' batteries the fun way. Hi, I'm Jeff from the U.S., and I was once told that if a high-tension line, a 23 kV power line, fell across my car... It isn't safe to stay inside because the tires aren't enough to insulate it and the tires and vehicle would catch fire. I was told that I had to open the car door and jump out, keeping my feet together, and then hop away from the car still with my feet right together because the voltage gradient present in the earth would be enough to shock me if I, my feet touched the ground at separate distances. I've often wondered since if this was really true. I spoke to Dr Richard McMahon at Cambridge University's Department of Electrical Engineering to find out exactly what happens when your car gets a big dose of electricity and whether you should be hopping about to escape. The questioner asks about some safety advice given on what to do if a 23,000 volt power line falls across your car. The advice given was to get out quickly as first the tyres and then the whole vehicle would set on fire. At 23,000 volts, the vehicle tyres will effectively insulate the vehicle and it acts as a so-called Faraday cage. You're perfectly safe inside. Your tyres will not set on fire in the time it takes for the circuit to disconnect. I do wonder, though, if there's a mistake in the question. In power transmission, high tension will be more like 230,000 volts. In this case, the story is a bit different and the current would jump to earth. This effect was shown recently on a popular television program where one of the two long-suffering assistants was volunteered to be subjected, in a car of course, to a strike of about a million volts. After 10 seconds of such shocks, 
the car started and the assistant drove off unscathed. So, if a power line were to form on our vehicle, assuming we survive any mechanical damage, such as broken glass, because power lines are pretty heavy, then the thing to do is to be well advised to stay put safely inside our Faraday cage until any arcing has stopped. In fact, circuit breakers should disconnect permanently in a second or so. So what do we do then? One of my students suggested gently driving away to dislodge the cable. This seems a good tactic, and if we can get free, we can get out safely. If we can't do that, you've got a choice of jumping out or waiting for the rescue services. You can't be absolutely sure that the cable is definitely dead. Finally, your chances of experiencing this potentially life-changing event are very, very small. However, if you're of a nervous disposition, avoid parking under power lines. If you park under a big power line and a big fat pigeon lands on it, it probably won't snap it. But if it did, then the best thing to do is to stay in your car. The power will surge around you, but not through you. As for hopping about, an electrical engineering O'Carroll tells me the principle, at least, is correct. When you have large current flowing through the ground, there will be a voltage difference radiating out from the point where the wire or car is touching. By keeping your feet close together, you minimise the voltage gradient across them and hence lessen the possible current flowing up and down your legs. Where does this power come from? Well, we'll be taking a look at that next week. Hello, my name is Brian Starkey. And my question is, from where do permanent magnets get their energy or power? I can put a fridge magnet on a fridge and it seems as if it will stay there forever with no sign of any power source. Also, if I try to push the light poles of two bar magnets together... My arms will grow tired long before the magnets grow weak, yet again there is no power or energy source. Can we not harness this invisible and seemingly endless source of energy? And following that, there's this one to get your thoughts in a twist. Hi, this is Francis Tapon, and I'm calling from San Francisco, and I've listened to The Naked Scientist while I was walking across America for seven months, and I'm addicted to your show. I had a question, though, while I was walking, and, and it's about tangling wires, because... I would put my MP3 player into a pocket, and every single time I pull it out, the wires are completely tangled up. And, in fact, they're so tangled, I couldn't even do it myself. My question is, why do wires get tangled? If you know where the power of magnetism comes from or why wiry things tend to tangle, then send an email to questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com or write your thoughts on our forum. That's www.thenakedscientist.com slash forum. That's all for Question of the Week on this edition of The Naked Scientists. Back to you guys. Thanks, Diana. And if you do go along to our forum, you can see the discussion that's raging on about this question, with Jay Shuttle saying that a 23-kilowatt power line wouldn't be much danger on dry land, and our rather mysterious another someone, I say in inverted commas, um, and he said that the, um, the suggestion to land with both feet together may just be to convince you to jump with both feet so you don't get a trailing foot caught in your car. We also had a great email from Michael Mattioni in Virginia who confirmed that you should jump with both feet to avoid having one foot in contact with the car while the other one is on the ground, which would send the voltage straight through you. But do you know where magnets get their apparent power from? Or why it is it when you pull your headphones out of your bag and they're much more tangled than you could ever imagine they managed to make themselves? Um, just email question of the week at at thenakedscientist.com with your answers or go to thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast.
This is The Naked Scientists with Dr Chris, Dr Helen and Dr Dave. And in a second, some kitchen science for you. But before then, Dave, Les in Cambridge wants to know, is plutonium and uranium found in the ground? And if so, could you accidentally trigger a nuclear explosion? Plutonium isn't found in the ground. It's artificially made. All this plutonium we use is artificially made um, in a nuclear reactor. Uranium is found in the ground. Today, it would be very, very difficult to make an artificial, accidentally make an artificial nuclear, a natural nuclear reactor because there's very little of the active uranium, uranium-235 left because it's all it's slowly decaying away and the longer we leave it, the less there is there. But a couple of billion years ago, there was actually a case where some bacteria concentrated uranium in Africa in one place and they've actually discovered that actually did form a nuclear reactor. It started um, reacting and got really hot and killed the bacteria off. It's got a geo-reactor, isn't it? Um, yeah, so you needed the bacteria as well, geo and biological, yeah. And also a lot of the heat that the Earth has locked away in its core is thought to be the radioactive decay of things like thorium and radioactive potassium. Yeah, um, but it, it hasn't got the chain reaction which a nuclear reactor would have. Thank you. Quick email here from Jim in Virginia. He sent me a rather nice picture of an oyster that he's found in the bay, Chesapeake Bay, in Virginia, um, and Helen. And he says that he can count 52 layers of the mother of pearl inside, if you look at this picture there. Um, and what he's saying is, can you, can you date or age shellfish in this way? I should think you can, actually, and I imagine that probably means it's 55 years old, because what you're seeing are these layers um, laid down on an annual basis, just like lots of things in nature have annual seasons of uh, summer and winter, and when you're growing very quickly, um, it's laid down down more basically than in the winter time when you slow down so you see these rears just like in a tree this tree rings very similar way you could do it with with uh, things that grow in the sea as well cheers helen right dave what experimentally are we doing okay we've got a really simple experiment for you to do now okay you may have noticed especially if you wear glasses i bet you have chris that if you walk in from a cold day outside and walk inside all of a sudden your glasses fog up really very quickly. embarrassing actually <laughs> It's not a problem I have, luckily. Um, okay, for this experiment, this is a way of, fi- of stopping this effect. Okay, so what you need is a glass, which is really quite cold. I've left this one in the fridge for a while, so it's going to um, fog up really nicely. Um, some hot water or some breath. And some water. <laughs> <laughs> breath is always useful. Okay, go on. So why um, does it... So breathe on that, then. So yeah, it's just fogging up a bit. So why does that happen? Okay, it's fogging up because the air inside your lungs is really moist. It's been touching lots and lots of moist surfaces in your lungs. It's about 95% humidity and about 35 degrees centigrade. When it meets a cold glass, um, the air can't hold that much water in it anymore, water vapour. So the water vapour drops out of the vapour and forms a liquid and forms little droplets. And these little droplets, will, when they're, they're curved, so when the light hits them, the light will get bent in the same way as if you look through like a Like a miniature lens. Like a miniature lens, yeah, bent all over the place. So instead of having, a, so instead of the light going straight through, it gets bent in all sorts of random directions and it looks foggy. Okay, so why does the why does the water form these droplets? Why doesn't it just spread out all over the place then? Um, because the water is much more strongly attracted to other bits of water than it is to the glass itself. It will tend to clump together and form these little globules. So that's probably or presumably the same reason that snow looks white then, because it's all in little particles and the light gets bounced around all over the place and all the wavelengths get reflected, so it looks white. Yeah, each of the little crystals would look clear, but because there's so many of them and the light is getting refracted in all sorts of and reflected in all sorts of strange, strange directions, you can't actually. It'll they'll all kind of all the colours will get mixed together and it'll look white. So what's the remedy? Okay, one remedy you can use is get some um, some kind of detergent, washing up liquid's the easiest one to get hold of, and just smear it over the surface. If you're actually doing this at home for a mirror, you might want to dilute it first, maybe like 10 or 20 times, because otherwise you'll get a kind of white um, layer forming. But it works just smearing it on. And now if I breathe on it, you should, and it'll put it over a hot thing, you should be able to see that it's fogging up everywhere where the um, washing up liquid isn't. 
I just described this for everyone at home. So Dave's holding a glass over a mug full of very, very hot liquid and the steam is forming a layer on the glass surface except where he drew with the washing up liquid and it's not forming fog there. Actually, it's very familiar to me and anyone else who's been scuba diving, we have exactly the same problem. If your mask mists up when you go diving and actually putting washing up liquid is one way of stopping it happening and spitting in it as well. So I don't know if that's something you were going to mention. (laughs) It wasn't, but that makes sense as well. Okay, the reason why both of these would work is that um, washing up liquid is called a surfactant. What it does is it um, will stick to something which doesn't like water at one end and then the other end really loves water. So now the whole of the glass is covered with these washing up liquid molecules um, which really love water so the water doesn't get what is attracted to the glass more strongly is to other water so instead of forming little globules it forms a big a flat sheet and a flat sheet when the light hits a big flat film of water instead of bending all over the place it just goes straight through and it looks clear Um, after a while of course if you have this in a bathroom mirror or something you get lots of water it'll run off and it will dilute away the washing up liquid so you have to re-put it on again after a while so anti-fogging coatings that you can get for glass sunglasses and normal glasses and other windows and things, they work by having some kind of coating that doesn't get washed off, presumably. Probably it will stick better to the glass than washing up liquid does, but a lot of them do work in this way. But it also loves water, so it pulls the water out into a flat sheet. Yeah. Preventing it forming these droplets. So it's flat, so you don't have this problem with little lenses forming. So hey presto, homemade anti-fog coating. So when you're next leaning over the oven and you're wearing glasses, because that's the big one, isn't it, Helen? You know, you wear glasses. When you open the the oven up and you get this face full of hot steam out of the oven, you just can't see what you're going to touch. So yes, that's very dangerous. The <laughs> well, look, the, a little, just to finish off, Helen, a little while ago you were on the programme and you said that you hated getting up in the morning, couldn't face it, alarm clock it. wrenching you from your pit. That's right. And you have spawned a huge email response with people <laughs> with possible solutions for you. Jen Brokeman uh, in Columbia said... Um, that she's got a system which uh, is uses na- natural sounds and soft beeps and things, which you program the time and it gently wakes you up by getting louder. Uh, we've nice. also got Catherine Meissner, who is in Bellingham in Washington in the United States, and she said that she's got a clock um, which it has a progressive light that starts 30 minutes before your wake-up time and inc- also includes sounds and scents, so you can also make yourself wake up with nice nice smells. So we'll put the email, the, the details of that one on our website. Also... Um, Cara's sentence says you can definitely get alarm clocks that light up gradually and that might ease Helen's problem. Um, Martin Holden, he's in the Netherlands, said he went to uh, a chemist shop and he got one called a Lumi Body Clock Advanced, which you set sunrise to start 30 minutes before you want to wake up and you're guaranteed to, to wake up. So that's good. Sounds fantastic. And we've also got uh, the Dream Machine. Uh, Maxim in Tampa, Florida says that one, same thing. So thank you, thank very, you much. very much. Well, I'll have to go and try some of those. I'll have to see what works. Right, thank you for listening to this week's Naked Scientist. I have to say thank you to Jim Gray, Mark Peplow, Chris Valence, and also our production team, Ben Valsler, Marison Thalingham, Diane O'Carroll and Petro Minch. Next week, we're investigating the phenomenon of why does bread always land butter side down? Or does it? You can help us. Join us on next week's Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.